Section 11 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Irene, Anno Domini, 1737. The whole of it is rich in thought and imagery and happy expressions, and of the disiecta membra scattered throughout, and as yet unarranged, a good dramatic poet might avail himself with considerable advantage. I shall give my readers some specimens of different kinds, distinguishing them by the italic character. Nor think to say, here will I stop, here will I fix the limits of transgression, nor farther tempt the avenging rage of heaven. When guilt like this once harbours in the breast those holy beings whose unseen direction guides through the maze of life the steps of man fly the detested mansions of impiety and quit their charge to horror and to ruin a small part only of this interesting admonition is preserved in the play and is varied i think not to advantage the soul once tainted with so foul a crime no more shall glow with friendship's hallowed ardour those holy beings whose superior care guides erring mortals to the paths of virtue affrighted at impiety like thine resign their charge to baseness and to ruin footnote act three scene eight end of footnote I feel the soft infection flush in my cheek and wander in my veins. Teach me the Grecian arts of soft persuasion. Sure this is love, which heretofore I conceived the dream of idle maids and wanton poets. Though no comets or prodigies foretold the ruin of Greece, signs which heaven must by another miracle enable us to understand yet might it be foreshown by tokens no less certain by the vices which always bring it on this last passage is worked up in the tragedy itself as follows leontius that power that kindly spreads the clouds a signal of impending showers to warn the wandering linnet to the shade beheld without concern expiring greece and not one prodigy foretold our fate demetrius a thousand horrid prodigies foretold it a feeble government eluded laws a factious populace luxurious nobles and all the maladies of sinking states when public villainy too strong for justice shows his bold front the harbinger of ruin can brave leontius call for airy wonders which cheats interpret and which fools regard when some neglected fabric nods beneath the weight of years and totters to the tempest must heaven dispatch the messengers of light or wake the dead to warn us of its fall footnote act one scene one end footnote 
Mohammed to Irene. I have tried thee, and joy to find that thou deservest to be loved by Mohammed, with a mind great as his own. Sure thou art an error of nature, and an exception to the rest of thy sex, and art immortal, or sentiments like thine were never yet to sink into nothing. I thought all the thoughts of the fair had been to select the graces of the day, dispose the colours of the flaunting, flowing robe, tune the voice and roll the eye, place the gem, choose the dress, and add new roses to the fading cheek, but sparkling. Thus in the tragedy. Illustrious maid, new wonders fix me thine. Thy soul completes the triumphs of thy face. I thought, forgive my fair, the noblest aim, the strongest effort of a female soul was but to choose the graces of the day to tune the tongue, to teach the eyes, to roll, dispose the colours of the flowing robe, and add new roses to the faded cheek. Footnote, Act 2, Scene 7, End of footnote. I shall select one other passage on account of the doctrine which it illustrates. Irene observes, That the Supreme Being will accept of virtue whatever outward circumstances it may be accompanied with, and may be delighted with varieties of worship, but is answered that variety cannot affect that being who, infinitely happy in his own perfections, wants no external gratifications, nor can infinite truth be delighted with falsehood, that though he may guide or pity those he leaves in darkness, he abandons those who shut their eyes against the beams of day. Johnson settles in London, Anno Domini, 1737. Johnson's residence at Lichfield, on his return to it at this time, was only for three months, and as he had as yet seen but a small part of the wonders of the metropolis, he had little to tell his townsmen. He related to me the following minute anecdote of this period. In the last age, when my mother lived in London, there were two sets of people, those who gave the wall and those who took it, the peaceable and the quarrelsome. When I returned to Lichfield after having been in London, my mother asked me whether I was one of those who gave the wall or those who took it. Now it is fixed that every man keeps to the right, or if one is taking the wall, another yields it, and it is never a dispute. Footnote, Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides, 3rd edition, page 232, September the 20th, 1773, Boswell, end footnote. He now removed to London with Mrs. Johnson, but her daughter, who had lived with them at Edgell, was left with her relations in the country, Footnote. Johnson's letter to her of February the 6th, 1759, shows that she was at that time living in his house at Lichfield. Miss Seward, Letters, Volume 1, page 116, says that she boarded in Lichfield with his mother. Some passages in other of his letters 
Croker's Boswell, pages 144-145-173, leave me to think that she stayed on in this house till 1766, when she had built herself a house with money left her by her brother. End of footnote. His lodgings were for some time in Woodstock Street, near Hanover Square, and afterwards in Castle Street, near Cavendish Square. As there is something pleasingly interesting to many in tracing so great a man through all his different habitations, I shall, before this work is concluded, present my readers with an exact list of his lodgings and houses in order of time, which, in placid condescension to my respectful curiosity, he one evening dictated to me, but without specifying how long he lived at each. In the progress of his life I shall have occasion to mention some of them as connected with particular incidents, or with the writing of particular parts of his works. To some this minute attention may appear trifling, but when we consider the punctilious exactness with which the different houses in which Milton resided have been traced by the writers of his life, a similar enthusiasm may be pardoned in the biographer of Johnson. His tragedy being by this time, as he thought, completely finished and fit for the stage, he was very desirous that it should be brought forward. Mr. Peter Garrick told me that Johnson and he went together to the Fountain Tavern and read it over, and that he afterwards solicited Mr. Fleetwood, the patentee of Drury Lane Theatre, to have it acted at his house, but Mr. Fleetwood would not accept it probably because it was not patronised by some man of high rank. Footnote. He could scarcely have solicited a worse manager. Horace Walpole, writing in 1744, Letters, Volume 1, page 332, says, The town has been trying all this winter to beat pantomimes off the stage very boisterously. Fleetwood, the master of Drury Lane, has omitted nothing to support them, as they supported his house. About ten days ago he let into the pit great numbers of bear garden bruises, that is, the term, to knock down everybody that hissed. The pit rallied their forces and drove them out. End of footnote. And it was not acted till 1749, when his friend David Garrick was manager of that theatre. The Gentleman's Magazine, I Tart 28 The Gentleman's Magazine, begun and carried on by Mr. Edward Cave under the name of Sylvanus Urban, footnote, it was not till Volume 5 that Cave's name was given on the title page. In Volumes 8 and 9, and Volumes 12 to 17, the name is Edward Cave, Jr., Cave, in his examination before the House of Lords on April the 30th, 1747, said that he was concerned in the gentleman's magazine at first with his nephew, and since the death of his nephew he has done it entirely himself. Parliamentary History, Volume 14, page 59. End of footnote. Had attracted the notice and esteem of Johnson in an eminent degree before he came to London as an adventurer in literature. He told me that when he first 
saw st john's gate the place where that deservedly popular miscellany was originally printed he beheld it with reverence footnote its sale according to johnson was ten thousand copies post april the twenty fifth seventeen seventy eight so popular was it that before it had completed its ninth year the fifth edition of some of the earliest numbers was printed johnson's works volume five page three four nine in the life of cave johnson describes it as a periodical pamphlet of which the scheme is known wherever the english language is spoken ibid volume six page four three one yet the early numbers contained verses as grossly indecent as they were dull cave moreover advertised indecent books for sale at st john's gate and in one instance at least the advertisement was in very gross language End of footnote. i suppose indeed that every young author has had the same kind of feeling for the magazine or periodical publication which has first entertained him and in which he has first had an opportunity to see himself in print without the risk of exposing his name i myself recollect such impressions from the scots magazine which was begun at edinburgh in the year seventeen thirty nine and has been ever conducted with judgment accuracy and propriety i yet cannot help thinking of it with an affectionate regard Johnson has dignified the gentleman's magazine by the importance with which he invests the life of Cave, but he has given it still greater lustre by the various admirable essays which he wrote for it. A list of Johnson's writings, Anno Domini, 1738. Though Johnson was often solicited by his friends to make a complete list of his writings, and talked of doing it i believe with a serious intention that they should all be collected on his own account he put it off from year to year and at last died without having done it perfectly i have one in his own handwriting which contains a certain number i indeed doubt if he could have remembered every one of them as they were so numerous so various and scattered in such a multiplicity of unconnected publications nay several of them published under the names of other persons to whom he liberally contributed from the abundance of his mind we must therefore be content to discover them partly from occasional information given by him to his friends and partly from internal evidence footnote while in the course of my narrative i enumerate his writings i shall take care that my readers shall not be left to waver in doubt between certainty and conjecture with regard to their authenticity and for that purpose shall mark with an asterisk those which he acknowledged to his friends and with a dagger those which are ascertained to be his by internal evidence when any other pieces are ascribed to him i shall give my reasons boswell end of footnote edward cave itat twenty nine his first performance in the gentleman's magazine which for many years was his principal source for employment and support 
was a copy of latin verses in march seventeen thirty eight addressed to the editor in so happy a style of compliment the cave must have been destitute both of taste and sensibility had he not felt himself highly gratified ad urbanum anno domini seventeen thirty eight hawkins says that cave had few of those qualities that constitute the character of urbanity upon the first approach of a stranger his practice was to continue sitting and for a few minutes to continue silent if at any time he was inclined to begin the discourse it was generally by putting a leaf of the magazine then in the press into the hand of his visitor and asking his opinion of it he was so incompetent a judge of johnson's abilities that meaning at one time to dazzle him with the splendour of some of those luminaries in literature who favoured him with their correspondence he told him that if he would in the evening be at a certain alehouse in the neighbourhood of clerkenwell he might have a chance of seeing mr brown and another or two of the persons mentioned in the preceding note the note contained the names of some of cave's regular writers johnson accepted the invitation and being introduced by cave dressed in a loose horseman's coat and such a great bushy uncombed wig as he constantly wore to the sight of mr brown whom he found sitting at the upper end of a long table in a cloud of tobacco smoke had his curiosity gratified mr carlyle writes of bushy winged cave but it was johnson whose wig is described and not caves on page three to seven hawkins again mentions his great bushy wig and says that it was ever nearly as impenetrable by a comb as a quick-set hedge hawkins's johnson pages forty five to fifty johnson after mentioning cave's slowness says the same chillness of mind was observable in his conversation he was watching the minutest accent of those whom he disgusted by seeming inattention and his visitant was surprised when he came a second time by preparations to execute the scheme which he supposed never to have been heard johnson's works volume six page four three four end of footnote ad urbanum urbane footnote the first lines put one in mind of casimir's ode to pope urban urbane regum maxime maxime urbane vatum the polish poet was probably at that time in the hands of a man who had meditated the history of the latin poets murphy's johnson page forty two end of footnote nullis fesse laboribus urbane nullis victae calumniis footnote cave had been grossly attacked by rival booksellers see gentleman's magazine volume eight page one five six hawkins says life page ninety two with that sagacity which we frequently observe but wonder at in men of slow parts he seemed to anticipate the advice contained in johnson's ode and forbore a reply though not his revenge this he gratified by reprinting in his own magazine 
one of the most scurrilous and foolish attacks. End footnote. Cui fronte certum in erudit perpetuo viret et virebit, quid moriato gensimilantium, quid et mineto solicitus parum, vacare solis pegi musis juxta animus turisque fere. Ningue pocaces plumbea spicula, fidem superbo frange silencio, victris per obstantes catavas sedulitas animosa tendit. Intende nervos fortis in animus, resorta solum nisibus emuli, intende iam nervos habebis participes opere camoenas. Non una musis pagina gratio, quamque severis ludicra jungere novit, verigamque nugis utilibus recreare mentem. Texente nymphis certa licoride, rose ruborem, sic viola riuva rimista, Sic iris refuget etris variata fucis. S.J. Footnote. A translation of this ode by an unknown correspondent appeared in the magazine for the month of May following. Hail Urban, indefatigable man, unwearied yet by all thy useful toil, whom numerous slanderers assault in vain, whom no base calumny can put to foil but still the laurel on thy learned brow flourishes fair and shall forever grow what mean the servile imitating crew what their vain blustering and their empty noise ne'er seek but still thy noble ends pursue unconquered by the rabble's venal voice still to the muse thy studious mind apply happy in temper as in industry the senseless sneerings of an haughty tongue unworthy thy attention to engage unheeded pass and though they mean thee wrong by manly silence disappoint their rage assiduous diligence confounds its foes resistless though malicious crowds oppose exert thy powers nor slacken in the course thy spotless fame shall quash all false reports exert thy powers nor fear a rival's force but thou shalt smile at all his vain efforts. Thy labours shall be crowned with large success, the muses aid thy magazine shall bless. No page more grateful to the harmonious nine than that wherein thy labours we survey, where solemn themes in fuller splendour shine, delightful mixture, blended with the gay, where in improving various joys we find a welcome respite to the wearied mind thus when the nymphs in some fair verdant mead of various flowers a beauteous wreath compose the lovely violet's azure painted head adds lustre to the crimson blushing rose thus splendid iris with her varied dye shines in the ether and adorns the sky Britain. Boswell, Reports of the debates, ITAR 29. Libels in the Press, Anno Domini, 1738. It appears that he was now enlisted by Mr. Cave as a regular coadjutor in his magazine, by which he probably obtained a tolerable livelihood, 
at what time or by what means he had acquired a competent knowledge both of French, footnote, I have some reason to think that at his first coming to town he frequented Slaughter's coffee-house with a view to acquire a habit of speaking French, but he never could attain to it. Lockman used the same method and succeeded. As Johnson himself once told me, Hawkins Johnson, page 516. Lockman is l'illustre Lockman, mentioned post, 1780, in Mr. Langton's collection. It was at Old Slaughter's Coffee House, when a number of foreigners were talking loud about little matters, that Johnson one evening said, Does this not confirm old Maynall's observation? For anything I see, foreigners are fools. Post Ibid, end of footnote. And Italian, footnote. He had read Petrarch when but a boy. Ante, page 57. End of footnote. I do not know but he was so well skilled in them as to be sufficiently qualified for a translator. That part of his labour which consisted in emendation and improvement of the productions of other contributors, like that employed in levelling ground, can be perceived only by those who had an opportunity of comparing the original with the altered copy. What we certainly know to have been done by him in this way was the debates in both Houses of Parliament under the name of the Senate of Lilliput, sometimes with feigned denominations of the several speakers, sometimes with denominations formed of the letters of their real names, in the manner of what is called anagram, so that they might easily be deciphered. Parliament then kept the press in a kind of mysterious awe, which made it necessary to have recourse to such devices. In our time it has acquired an unrestrained freedom, so that the people in all parts of the kingdom have a fair, open and exact report of the actual proceedings of their representatives and legislators, which in our constitution is highly to be valued though unquestionably there has of late been too much reason to complain of the petulance with which obscure scribblers have presumed to treat men of the most respectable character and situation. Footnote. Horace Walpole, writing of the year 1770 about libels, says, Their excess was shocking, and in nothing more condemnable than in the dangers they brought on the liberty of the press. This evil was chiefly due to the spirit of the court which aimed at despotism and the daring attempts of Lord Mansfield to stifle the liberty of the press. His innovations had given such an alarm that scarce a jury would find the rankest satire libelous. Memoirs of the Reign of George Third, Volume 4, page 167 Smollett in Humphrey Clinker, published in 1771, makes Mr. Bramble write in his letter of June the 2nd, The public papers are become the infamous vehicles of the most cruel and perfidious defamation. Every rancorous knave, every desperate incendiary that can afford to spend half a crown or three shillings, may skulk behind the press of a newsmonger, 
and have a stab at the first character in the kingdom without running the least hazard of detection or punishment. The scribblers who had of late shown their petulance were not always obscure. Such scurrilous but humorous pieces as Probationary Odes for the Laureateship, The Rolliad, and Royal Recollections, which were all published while Boswell was writing the life of Johnson, were written, there can be little doubt, by men of position. In the first of the three, page 27, Boswell is ridiculed. He is made to say, I know Mulgrave is a bit of a poet as well as myself, for I dined in company once where he dined that very day twelvemonth. This evil of libelling had extended to America. Benjamin Franklin, Memoirs, Volume 1, page 148, writing in 1784, says that libelling and personal abuse have of late years become so disgraceful to our country. Many of our printers make no scruple of gratifying the malice of individuals by false accusations of the fairest characters. End of footnote. William Guthrie, Itard 29. This important article of the Gentleman's Magazine was for several years executed by Mr. William Guthrie, a man who deserves to be respectably recorded in the literary annals of this country. He was descended of an ancient family in Scotland, but having a small patrimony and being an adherent of the unfortunate House of Stuart, he could not accept of any office in the state. He therefore came to London and employed his talents and learning as an author by profession. Footnote. Boswell perhaps refers to a book published in 1758 called The Case of Authors by Profession, Gentleman's Magazine, Volume 28, page 130. Guthrie applies the term to himself in the letter below. End of footnote. His writings in history, criticism, and politics had considerable merit. Footnote. How much poetry he wrote, I know not, but he informed me that he was the author of the beautiful little piece The Eagle and Robin Redbreast in the collection of poems entitled The Union, though it is there said to be written by Archibald Scott before the year 1600. Boswell. Mr. P. Cunningham has seen a letter of Joseph Wharton's which states that this poem was written by his brother Tom, who edited the volume, Croker, end of footnote. He was the first English historian who had recourse to that authentic source of information, the parliamentary journals, and such was the power of his political pen that, at an early period, government thought it worth their while to keep it quiet by a pension which he enjoyed till his death. Johnson esteemed him enough to wish that his life should be written. Footnote. Dr. A. Carlyle, in his autobiography, page 191, describes a curious scene that he witnessed in the British coffee-house. A Captain Cheap was employed by Lord Anson to look out for a proper person to write his voyage. Cheap had a predilection for his countrymen, and having heard of Guthrie, he had come down to the coffee-house to inquire about him. Not long after Cheap had sat down, 
guthrie arrived dressed in laced clothes and talking loud to everybody and soon fell a wrangling with a gentleman about tragedy and comedy in the unities etc and laid down the law of the drama in a peremptory manner supporting his arguments with cursing and swearing i saw cheap was astonished when going to the bar he asked who this was and finding it was guthrie he paid his coffee and slunk off in silence guthrie's meanness is shown by the following letter in disraeli's calamities of authors volume one page five june the third seventeen sixty two my lord in the years seventeen forty five to six mr pelham then first lord of the treasury acquainted me that it was his majesty's pleasure i should receive till better provided for which never has happened two hundred pounds a year to be paid by him and his successors in the treasury i was satisfied with the august name made use of and the appointment has been regularly and quarterly paid me ever since i have been equally punctual in doing the government all the services that fell within my abilities or sphere of life especially in those critical situations that call for unanimity in the service of the crown your lordship may possibly now suspect that i am an author by profession you are not deceived and will be less so if you believe that i am disposed to serve his majesty under your lordship's future patronage and protection with greater zeal if possible than ever i have the honour to be my lord etc william guthrie the lord's name is not given see post spring of seventeen sixty eight and seventeen eighty in mr langton's collection for further mention of guthrie and a footnote the debates in parliament which were brought home and digested by guthrie whose memory though surpassed by others who have since followed him in the same department was yet very quick and tenacious were sent by cave to johnson for his revision footnote perhaps there were scotticisms for johnson to correct for churchill in the author writing of guthrie asks with rude unnatural jargon to support half scotch half english a declining court is there not guthrie churchill's poems volume two number thirty nine and after some time when guthrie had attained to greater variety of employment and the speeches were more and more enriched by the accession of johnson's genius it was resolved that he should do the whole himself from the scanty notes furnished by persons employed to attend in both houses of parliament sometimes however as he himself told me he had nothing more communicated to him than the names of the several speakers and the part which they had taken in the debate footnote see appendix a end of footnote end of section eleven